I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, 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 and welcome, ladybirds and gentle lemurs, to the Human Nature Podcast. Here we explore the ups and downs of being Homo sapiens and learn a thing or two on how to be a better animal. My name is Elliot Connor, and I'm at least half elephant. But the star of the show today is none other than Nils Guyard, who is a Belgian ecologist and, dare I say, a consultant superstar, a naturalist uh, who has logged many, many thousands of observations across all sorts of species, uh, but I hear with a special interest in those with flight. So, Nils, welcome to the show. Hi, Elliot. Thank you. <laughs> so, I hear you've chosen to speak about bats with us today. Uh, what led you to that choice and why, why this fascination uh, with these creatures of the air? As, as many people, when, when I was a, a kid, I liked animals. And then when I wanted to get serious, seriously into it, I got into birding. Um, and that led me to meet lots, lots of people. And then one day I ended up catching bats um, with some of my friends uh, as part of a, of a larger project. It was, it was a serious thing. Um, mm. And I just loved it. And then what I really liked is that the more I read about them, the more I understood that we know basically nothing about them. And it's something that really drew me to them because with birds, when I had a question, I could find the answer and I don't like finding answers. <laughs> yeah. I like finding more questions. Um, and I had that with rats. So yeah, that's what, that's what I've been doing for years now. It's just asking myself questions, looking up answers, and ending, and ending up with more questions than I had in the beginning. Awesome. Now, I love that answer, uh, that desire to know more, have more questions instead of uh, just finding the answers. I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh, I do some bird banding here in Australia, uh, so for research, of course. Uh, but I think it'd be really interesting for our audience if you can go through uh, just how you go about researching bats uh, you mentioned catching them. I've, I assume you're taking some measurements, uh, perhaps uh, locking uh, their size, their movements. How does that all come together? And uh, for you, yourself and your work, how do you record uh, the biodiversity of the bats that may be present in an area? Yeah, so I don't think bats is extremely difficult. Um, <laughs> that's the first thing to know. It's, and also in most countries where research is being done they're protected so you have to go through the whole process of um, uh, mm. designing a project to 
uh, then apply for a license and stuff like that. But legal aspects aside, um, the main issue when you want to research diversity of bats is making sure that the method you're using allows you to identify the species you're looking for. So with catching, you can basically identify everything, although now with all the genetics work that's being done, it's getting harder and harder to identify the species because, yeah, you need to put them in a little Eppendorf and then uh, run some PCR tests. Anyway, yeah, so the main method is is catching them exactly like you do with birds to ban them. Um, So you set up nets. They're slightly different nets, but the idea is the same. And you catch them, and then there are a few measurements that you can take. The main one, the main one is the forearm. Uh, it would be the equivalent of wing length on a bird. You yeah. can also measure some of the fingers uh, because bats have five fingers just like us. Um, and well, I know that various people in various parts of the world measure different fingers. I've asked why everyone was measuring that finger, not that one. And yeah, I never really got a definitive answer. But people <laughs> measure any finger they want, basically. Uh, and then sometimes you have to measure specific things just to get to an identification. Uh, and that yeah. could be the fingernail of one of the fingers, can be the phalanx of one of a, of a thumb. It can be extremely crazy things to measure and that are insanely small. Uh, and that make you rethink everything you've, you've, <laughs> you've done that, this far. Um, but then there's also methods that are relatively new. And that's all the acoustics um, side of things. I That's the bit I really love. It has a lot of challenges, but the main cool thing about it is that it's non-invasive. So you don't have to catch the bats. Um, and that means it can be done in most places without needing a license or anything like that. So you could do a preliminary survey with acoustics being like, oh, this is good because it's got a lot of diversity, even if you don't get all the identifications right because of acoustics, you can still have a pretty good idea of the level of diversity of a given site. And then if you want, you can, you know, build a project and apply for a license and then catch. But it it also allows you to cover a lot more ground than catching because catching is a lot, is extremely time intensive. So yeah, there's those two big methods. uh, They each have their benefits and drawbacks, obviously. I love them both. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You also have roost visits. So there can be summer roost visits or winter roost visits. I only do the latter. Uh, and you basically just check caves of hibernating bats, at least in Europe. Um, and then you identify them there. And it's actually the main method used for population estimates um, in some parts of Europe because it's the only time in the year where you're pretty sure that you are seeing a significant part of the population because you can't draw any sort of population statistics from acoustics yeah and then traveling i mean you you, you do catch some bats but you don't know how that relates to the population as a whole whereas sure. if you survey most caves in your country you you're getting close <laughs> Now I've got uh, very vivid memories of a bat count I did last year. So we've got the flying foxes uh, here in Sydney. Uh, very cool bats to have. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> somewhat of a nuisance. Uh, they get a bit of a bad rap, uh, but a very interesting uh, bats, uh, which we have in many of the local parks. Uh, so 
Uh, I was doing it as part of a citizen science project in a local park. And uh, what they do is they have a post of several volunteers, uh, maybe 15 degree intervals all around uh, the swamp area uh, where the bats were roosting during the day. Uh, so I arrived there just as it's getting dark at dusk and uh, wait till they start to fly out. Uh, so uh, initially it's a trickle of uh, them uh, leaving their roosting sites, going out to feed uh, as uh, the night gets darker. Uh, but then it turns into this continuous stream. And uh, because, uh, of course, bats, when they fly, uh, they're not particularly consistent. Or they don't always fly in straight lines, uh, especially at the start. You have some which just circle back. So you're trying to count those which are going out and yeah. those which are going back. It's, it's an absolute nightmare. So you're trying to get it to the closest order of magnitude, essentially. I can't imagine. It's especially scientific doing it that way. Uh, but it was highly amusing, nevertheless. Yeah. I mean, there are caves in Texas, for example, that have millions or sometimes dozens of millions of bats. So if you want to count those, obviously you can't count the whole thing. So you have to count mm. um, a wind during a window, a time window, but then it's hard to make sure that that window is actually really representative of, of the whole, because it's not a constant flow. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really tricky. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, I was reading a bit more about the work that you do, uh, some of the fascinating things you've been up to. And uh, one uh, project, which, of course, is especially uh, notable, is this uh, big bat year you took. Uh, so uh, traveling around the world, trying to see as many species of these creatures as you could. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so um, as I said earlier, I I started as a birder, and obviously the, the big years that were done in 2015 and 2016 um, were, I mean, I followed them, and I, re I was really excited by them. And then I saw the, the amount of attention it was getting um, and the fact that it could be used, that attention could be used to raise awareness on conservation issues that most people don't know about. So I figured, why not do the same for bats? Um, because hmm. whatever number I get, it's a world record. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> and then also, uh, it's never been done before. Hmm. And it would be a good way to um, draw attention to those creatures um, from a different perspective. Um, because my goal was really, by using um, a format that's well known to birders, my goal was to basically make birders love bats more. Um, that was one of the goals. I ended up seeing and recording 396 bat species, which is actually wow. pretty good. Um, yeah. I had no idea how, what, what kind of numbers I could expect because, well, no one's done that before. No one, very few people um, travel to see bats. It's not really a hobby. It's more of a, either a job or, yeah, that, no, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> It's really mostly professionals who work with bats. Uh, there aren't too many hobbyists. Um, but I think that's something that's lacking um, because once you get hobbyists into something, that means there's money in it. And that means you can fund ecotourism, um, which is a big thing in a lot of tropical regions where you have all those birding lodges and things because birders bring in money. And if bats become a hobby, they could also become a source of income and then they would be protected the same way birds are protected in some areas. I think that's really interesting. 
do, do you have an idea of why bird watching may be so popular and perhaps bat watching hasn't yet taken on? Uh, well, I think it's, it's, a, it's a lot of different things. First is, I mean, bats are an obscure creature that a lot of people are afraid of because, you know, when you're a kid, you hear stories about them. And then also, they're not really colourful. I mean, if you look at birds, you've got basically every colour on there. Yeah. Bats, there are a few that are colourful, but there's like maybe a dozen from around the world. Um, so they're not as attractive visually, I want to say. Um, and also is that if you want to watch birds, obviously having binoculars helps a lot. But even if you don't have them, you can still see things. With bats, yeah. unless you have flying foxes nearby, because they are a big exception, I would say. Uh, and there may be some caves that you might know. But if you want to get into acoustics, the, the entry price is usually quite high. And the, the required skills are immediately very high as well. You don't really have time to get through that learning curve. It gets really complicated really fast. Yeah, it's a combination of, of, of being expensive, being very complex, um, and also, yeah, the bad reputation. But I think it can change, and it is changing in, in a lot of places around the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I certainly hope that we can get more bat watchers into the future. Uh, it sounds fascinating what you've been up to. Uh, of course, uh, here in Sydney with the flying foxes, uh, we just get them flapping across the horizon uh, with the setting sun. Uh, it's a beautiful sight. Uh, but sadly, uh, not the case where you are on 99% of the world. Uh, so much, much harder to see them, to appreciate them, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you mentioned just then around uh, the reputation that bats have acquired. Uh, I'm really interested to hear uh, perhaps some of your perspective on, uh, in your travels, have you encountered that? Uh, what do you think the origin, uh, perhaps, of some of those beliefs, superstitions, maybe, and some of this ongoing fear surrounding the bats and these creatures of the night. So what I noticed, and I mean, it, it might just be my feeling, but when talking to other people, it, it looks like there's something in there, is that the, um, so you've got different categories of how people um, think about bats. So the main, the main one, the one we know, is the people fear bats. And that seems to be mainly centered around Europe and its former colonies. So where there's still a European influence, and that would include North America and, and Australia. Yeah. Um, once you leave that sort of sphere of influence, you find that people either don't care about bats, they're just an animal like any other. They can be... A nuisance if um, they eat the crops, for example, um, or they can be a source of food like any other animal in the forest. You've got those three different perspectives, um, and often you often you find that they coexist. Um, mm. So unless people have a direct relationship with the bats, either because they need them to eat or because well they don't like because they eat the food they need, they don't really care. Um, so, yeah, that, that fear of bats that I'm very used to here in Europe, I, I, I didn't really find it elsewhere. It was, it was quite surprising. But then when I think about it, it's, it's understandable um, because we tend to be fairly disconnected from nature, whereas 
a lot of other most people around the world aren't that disconnected um, yeah okay now that's something i've never considered it's so really interesting to hear uh, some of that geographical divide in terms of how we look at bats and uh, creatures like that i think it's a really good point you raise uh, i imagine we've got time for maybe one more question uh, so i mean it's probably one you get asked uh, quite often uh, but do you have a favorite species of bat or any animal indeed uh, no, I don't. Um, I've got a selection. So based on specific criteria, I will have that or, yeah, it, I, I've had to work on my answer because I can't just answer, I don't know, because that's just <laughs> so underwhelming. Uh, but so in Europe, for example, my, my favourite bat would be the particulate bat, um, which is a bat that not only looks really pretty when you see it up close, I've never seen it, but I've seen lots of pictures and I'm looking at a sticker that I've, I've put on my laptop right now. Um, I really like that bat. And also it's a, um, it's a migratory bat. So it does over 3000 kilometers a year, uh, which is quite impressive for a bat that's 15 grams. Yeah. And then further afield, I mean, obviously, yeah, the, the, the fairly colorful ones. So the yellowing bat from East Africa, um, the painted bat from Southeast Asia, which is bright orange and black. Um, that's a surprisingly good camouflage when you roost in, um, in a dead banana leaf. <laughs> I was not expecting that, but after having seen one under a dead banana leaf, it doesn't look that bright and orange. So, yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, a lot of bats are really cool, but yeah, it's, it's hard to pick one really. Um, then there are bats, obviously, that I had um, a great time with during my bat year. So I'm a bit biased there, but I, okay. I rediscovered a critically endangered species in New Caledonia. Wow. It's nothing special. I mean, yeah, the discovery is special, but the bat itself is nothing special. It's it's one of those long ears that you get in Australia. Um, it's just another one of those. But the fact that it was presumed extinct and then I found it is, is exciting to me. So I really like that bat as well. Definitely. <laughs> now, I love the answer as a bird watcher and being a naturalist myself is something you have to find an answer to. What's your favourite bird? What's your favourite bat? <laughs> it's not an easy question by any means. Yeah, because you, you get the question all the time and then you're hmm. like, well, I don't really know because there's so many. I mean, Of course. Yeah. No, but I love that breakdown of yours. It's a fascinating species you mentioned. Incredible as well, your story about New Caledonia. Uh, rediscovering the bat uh, very very impressive i also found a completely new bat for for science in west papua okay um it hasn't been described yet because that's super tricky getting permits and things but we know it's new and that's about it <laughs> okay no really interesting yeah i think uh, that's definitely uh, one of those bucket list goals you must have as a scientist a naturalist researcher discovering a new species yeah it was when i was seven or eight and people used to ask me what's your dream in life uh, that that would be my answer discovering yeah. a new species so yeah i was a bit of an oddball as a kid but uh <laughs> i've done it so that's it <laughs> love it love it well it's been great chatting nils it's been a fascinating conversation of course for our listeners we'll be back next week with another episode of the human nature podcast until then, stay safe and to try and be a better animal. Uh, thank you all and goodbye.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.